1: Should all the acquaintance be forgot and never brought to? Mind? Welcome to Health
3: and
4: Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne. I'm with me again is Karina Bourne. This is part two of the Christmas bonus where we review and look over the year that was. Hopefully, you enjoyed your Christmas and you're now feeling invigorated and anticipating a wonderful twenty twenty-three.
5: So Tom, what are your thoughts leading into the new year and, and what have you got planned for the for the new year with regards to the podcast?
4: Oh, in regards to the podcast. Well, it's actually quite a quite an exciting time, Karina. I can tell you because i you might know I lie awake at night and, and, and think about all the things we, we could do and i think this year's a good opportunity or well, next year 2023 the upcoming year is a good opportunity to do some things differently and expand on what we've learned from season 1 in particular there'd be there's a few things i would like to change and, and to, to modify now This goes back to the origins of the name of the program. And to be honest, we actually gave this a, a bit of thought and we decided it wouldn't be work health and safety conversations. It would be health and safety conversations because I wanted the opportunity, not just to look at health and safety in the workplace, but also in the greater community. And I think you cannot look at safety in isolation In just and apply it only to the workplace. I think it affects individuals across the board no matter what setting they are in. So with that in mind this season coming up the upcoming season two I'd like to do some extra work with individuals and groups that help provide community safety. So this, this could be with special groups like groups that look after child safety, but groups that look after safety in the home. I also think I'd like to actually talk to people in a few other industries which don't get a lot of space in the health and safety sphere. Things like childcare, aged care, more about from people working in the front lines, factory workers. But I'd also like to spend some time speaking to CEOs, senior management, to get their perspective on safety. Quite often, we we all we look at is the worker's point of view. And I think we've got to start to look at safety covering the whole gamut and more holistic approach to safety. I'd like to introduce for season two, the opportunity for people who want to talk about safety and come on the program but for whatever reasons, do not want to be identified on the program. Now, there is a, a caveat with that, and that is the program will never become an avenue for people to make endless allegations or to you know, talk about other individuals on the show. Okay, But I think there are a lot of people who would like to talk about safety issues, but whether it's because of personal repercussions, whether it's because they're perhaps a little introvert or not confident in in putting their name out there, or whether it's about, you know, professional repercussions if they go on air, I'd like them to have the opportunity to come forward and tell their story. I think it's just as valid as other people who that we've already talked with.
5: Well, those sound like some great plans, Tom, and it's really exciting to hear. diversity and and thinking about what different approaches there needs to be considered in in health and safety and I know that in my role and particularly I know that it's it's a really important thing to think about how people think about how they're keeping themselves safe and in both the professional and in home environments because we know that those are really linked and and you can't, you know, you can't always leave work at work at at work and you can't always leave home at home. So sometimes it's it's natural for those things to to be intertwined and, and have that consideration around that. So I'm really excited.
4: Yeah, excellent. Speaking of your work, Karina, what do you do for work?
5: So I work in the mental health field in early childhood education and care, and it's a really important space thinking about mental health for children for educators and for families and, and I think it's a great initiative that I'm involved in and I, I love it.
4: I've never seen you so happy in work and it, it, it makes me very happy that I see a good not only physical safety environment that you work in but also a mentally mm. healthy environment and yeah I, I appreciate your employer providing that for you
5: doesn't happen everywhere i feel very very blessed
4: <laughs> now here's something that i didn't mention to karina early this is a surprise and it's going on air live so if you would like to hear more from karina and perhaps less from boring old tom perhaps you should leave a comment on the website health and safety because she is a marvelous person and she also has a marvelous presence on the air as well but if not you're stuck with me all the time
5: oh you're too kind tom so let's go into today's highlights who have you got for us today tom
4: all right. The next grouping of people we have today, Karina, are the people I like to call the psychosocial experts. And first up, we heard from Michael Plowright, who talked to us about bullying and harassment in the workplace.
6: So leaders is mm-hmm. where a key focus is, and working on them to be able to change their behaviours so that they're not abrasive and they become a really productive member of the workplace type of staff. I think one I think it's probably in some ways it's the most exciting part of it for me. Because what we're trying what I'm trying to do is is trying to actually get people to think about those people who use bullying behaviors as humans because they're so demonized all the mm. time. You know, if you hear, you know, people who use bullying behaviors, they're called demons, they're called psychopaths, they're called narcissists, they're called, you know, snakes in suits. You, they're called every swear word under the sun, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, these people are human and with some work, many of them can change their behaviours. And the thing for me is over the years I've seen so many people who use bullying and abrasive behaviours move from one spot into a workplace to another to another so they're transferred between departments Mm -hmm. or they just go to another workplace and use the same behaviours. So so part of what I do is how can we change these behaviours so that the ongoing risk is potentially mitigated. And these people, you know, who usually have some fantastic technical skills actually become productive members of the workplace just by refining some of those people management skills type of stuff. Or, you know, in some instances, it might be finding a job that doesn't involve people. You know, that might be what they need and, and we can work through that in coaching. And then the other side of things is, is around strategies for people who have been bullied in the workplace. In your opinion, is bullying in the workplace underreported? Hmm. Look, you know, you look at the official data, right? And and you know, if you you look at the the workplace barometer report, workplace barometer says that bullying is about ten percent. You know, in, in in six in a six month period, I should say, and across a lifetime, it's around. Forty percent of employees will be, be bullied. I actually am not one hundred percent sure when we talk about the under under reporting question, right? And the reason I I say this is because a lot of my colleagues and my peers will talk about, well, you know, who do investigations, for example, will will do that sort of thing of they'll say to me, Michael, you know, most of the incidents I investigate, you know, aren't bullying, right? And so but what I tend to have come to the conclusion of anyway is that in some ways whether it's bullying or not is irrelevant because the perception that somebody has that they're being bullied is actually what's going to impact them on them on, on a mental point of view, yeah. right? So it doesn't matter if I've been bullied or not, you know, and look, and, and I will be quite honest, you know, here, you know, I, you know, initially got into this field because I had my own experience of, of workplace bullying many years ago. And, you know, and I look back and I, you know, ask myself, was I bullied or was I not? You know, and other people, you know, when I've talked about it and I've worked it through, have said, Michael, you were bullied, you were bullied, you know, type of stuff, you know. But in my own mind, I still have this doubt. Was I bullied? But realistically, from my perspective, whether I was bullied or not was irrelevant because the behaviours that I experienced, and I'm going to be honest, some of those behaviours were really quite sick. Next we heard from Emma Parsons. Emma Parsons, again,
4: focused on bullying and harassment, but with a particular bend towards construction and the mining industry, particularly in Queensland.
7: He said, and I know you understand industry. He said, so I'll take, I'll take notice of you. He said, yeah. "So we need you back. And it was a really pinnacle moment for me because I did some Facebook ads just to see whether the guys were listening, whether they wanted to know you know mm-hmm. so and i tell you what the the retention rate on the videos that i put out as testers far superseded anything i'd put out for women it was like the men were crying for help yep and it was like okay me being either all in or all out i was all in <laughs> cool. Cool. so i then started focusing on on guys and then realizing that you know that they, they wasn't at the stage of of seeking for coaching like we're talking about tradies here the guy you know boilermakers, makers carpenters electricians you know they wasn't ready for it so it's like well how can I get to them Mm -hmm. so then I started looking at doing leadership training coaching communications all of that stuff with the leaders to filter push down and I started realizing very quickly that people were very happy of trying to solve a problem that they had but they were solving the symptoms, not mm. the problem, not the course. And I was doing all these leadership training courses, and I love facilitating. But for me, it's like, how am I making a difference here? How do I know that this is actually what you need? You know, mm-hmm. are we just, how, how big is this band-aid going to get before we actually understand what the root cause of all this is? So then I started looking on and coming from construction. We're, we're used to KPIs. <laughs> KPIs yep. are everywhere. So then I started looking into okay. So how can I make this measurable? How can I find something and do something that's actually going to mean something in mental health? Because at the moment there is no way that we can measure mental health.
8: Yep.
7: There's well being. There's mm-hmm. are you feeling stressed? Yes or no? What's that going to do? How how do you know whether it's a temporary stress, a good stress, a bad stress? How long it's going on for? So I started scrolling through the legislation (laughs) and because there was nothing out there to educate any anything around psychosocial hazards psychosocial risks there was the word one word in the legislation which says that it is that health means physical and psychosocial Mm -hmm. but everyone still talks about physical okay and then when you have a look and then I I started digging and digging And the more I was talking to to clients and people, it it was becoming really clear to me that no one really understood what that actually meant or how to manage it.
4: Finally, in that grouping, we heard from Nicole Turnbull, who talked about Neon Shed and her work to tackle and help workplaces reduce the impacts of sexual harassment in the workplace.
9: So, Neon Shed makes tough communications easy and brings light to the dark sides of work. So, I found that there's seven dark sides of work that can bring individuals, teams, organizations, and even industries down. So, they are bullying and sexual harassment, discrimination, mental health stigma, office politics, poor leadership, profit before people, the community, or the environment, and we can't forget the systems instructions that allow it to happen. <laughs> so I witnessed and experienced all of the dark sides of work in these agencies. And they're responsible for telling employers and workers what to do when it comes to physical and psychological safety. But I found the how was missing. So if you've got a workplace grievance or problem, we're told to talk to, pers- to the person if you can. Uh, look at your policy talk to your manager or report it to HR and most of us have tried these things and sometimes they work but sometimes they don't but how do any of these things help or how are you supposed to do these things how do you ask the perpetrator to stop when when we experience or witness sexual harassment or bullying at work we go into a fight flight freeze and our brains and our bodies literally stop functioning effectively so if you're a victim How do you do that? What do you say? How do you stop it in your team if it happens and you're the manager? We're just not given the tools to appropriately manage these things. So my focus and expertise in Neon Shed is on bullying and sexual harassment. And what I do there is I provide employers, managers, HR, work health and safety, and workers who witness and experience these issues with the how. How? how to prevent and manage these issues, how to eliminate them and how to repair the harm where they can. I also show witnesses and targets how to take back their power and their right to a safe workplace. So I provide what I call courage continuums. So there's one for allies and there's one for targets. And they're things that people can do or say in the moment or afterwards, depending on their level of confidence and the time. So yeah, it's really those those how tools and delving into the tough communications that people avoid or they sweep under the rug because they're too awkward and uncomfortable and we're just not shown how to do. So mm. yeah, that's neon shed. So if you have a look in your industry association or the employer group, a lot of them do, you know, the the general statistics. The Australian Human Rights Commission, they also do a survey every five or six years. And in 2012, one in five people had experienced sexual harassment at work. But in 2018, it went to one in three. So, and if you look on LinkedIn any other day, you can see something else coming out (laughs) in the media or an association saying that this is what they're going to do to to fight that and stop that. But just one of the examples in the Australian Human Rights Commission survey is 81% of people in the telco and media industry have been sexually harassed in the five years leading up to 2018. So if you're in a team of 10, less than two of you will not be sexually harassed. That's
2: um, that's appalling.
9: It is. <laughs> it is. And it's it's sexual jokes, it's innuendo, it's part of our the Australian culture. It's part of some, you know, male-dominated industries. They have been male-dominated for such a long time. So things that have been considered okay in the past are not okay now. So, you know, with the times up, Me Too movement, there's been a lot of exposure, a lot of awareness of things that are happening that are normally swept under the rug. So uh, yeah, I I, you know, think you were talking about the issue that happened in Parliament House. It's 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 happening. And unfortunately it's not just the jokes. It's not just, you know, the the comments the 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 images the pictures which are all horrific in themselves it is also looking at sexual assault it's it's rape it's it's horrific so if you don't know if it's happening in your workplace or not you need to ask and often people know the issues if you go into any organization and say hey who sexually harasses here or who's the bully You Mm -hmm. often get a pretty clear picture. So it'd have to take someone, you know, not in the office or not listening or not hearing what's going on in their organization to not know. But yeah, it's really important, especially when it comes to sexual harassment. It's really important to know because if you don't do something about it, you need to be proactive and prevent these things now as part of legislation. But if you don't do something about it and someone reports it to you, you're actually liable for not only the actions of the perpetrator, but the harm caused as well.
4: So, Karina, as the long-suffering wife of a podcast...
9: I don't suffer
5: at all, Tom.
4: <laughs> what's the best thing that you think has come out of season one of Health and Safety Conversations?
5: I think it has to be the amazing conversations you've had and, and how how much I've learned from the conversations and listening to the conversations. It's been really fantastic
4: and uh, you can only choose one unfortunately the the one negative thing you've 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 found with putting up with someone who podcasts
5: probably they are getting up at 4 30 in the morning to record being on WA time sometimes it's a little tricky to to fit the the recording of the podcast and so you know you're getting up at 4 30 in the morning is um sometimes a bit rough, but it's well worth it, I think, to get the quality of the conversations and things. What about you, Tom? What's been your biggest highlight? Yes,
4: highlight. Having an opportunity to speak to great minds and great people. And I'll be perfectly honest, if it wasn't for the podcast, I probably in my life would never have had an opportunity to speak to some absolutely amazing people. And so I feel completely blessed that the podcast has given me that that opportunity, and has helped me grow and learn from some some of the ideas that the people have had. So that's been a real positive.
5: What about a challenge? Has it been a challenge that you faced through developing the podcast? That has
4: yeah, to mind? time, time. <laughs> I when I first. Tom. When I when I first started this, I read I was reading something about podcasts and it said you can do this with twenty minutes a week. And I went twenty minutes a week. I can give up that. Mm, don't think it's twenty <laughs> minutes a week, Tom. I don't think it's twenty minutes okay. a day, Evan. But look, it's been very rewarding, and the sacrifices we've made, I, I hope, have been worthwhile not only for me but also for the listeners and. That's why we do it. To be honest, it's it, it's not a, a, a little cheap venture. It, it certainly does cost us money to run and, and that's been a little difficult at times. But hopefully next year things might get a bit, bit better there and hopefully we'll have a bit more free time so that I'm not hopping up at ridiculous times and I'm not also trying to get people to record after they've finished their hard day's work or before they literally run out the door to go to work. But we will see. We will endure.
5: All right, who's up next, Tom? Well,
4: the next group of people, Karina, is what I call the sharp edge of safety. They're the first-line responders. And first we heard from Amy Rusa, all the way from Iowa in the United States, and she talked about the safety rack and the importance of having PPE designed for women she also talked about
5: pockets <laughs>
4: yeah.
5: how we need pockets and how I, I feel like this is a really big thing because we, we really underestimate some of those equities and inequities that are so small but are so ingrained so you know things like having pockets is such an important part of some people's work I know that I couldn't have gone far in my career without having pockets to put little things in that children had given me so you know, that's a huge thing. So, mm,
2: awesome. So thanks, Amy. I think what you have is this unfortunate viewpoint from maybe manufacturers out there that women are just small men. We're not. So our bodies are greatly different from yours, right? So as a woman, I have more narrow shoulders, but I'm going to have wider hips. I might have a bigger chest. Those are things that need to be factored in to the PPE When it comes to gloves, my hand size, palm-wise, is going to be smaller, and so is my finger length versus a man's size. And I have a really good picture of that somewhere on my LinkedIn page of a guy that had a size 6X glove. He was like a bear of a man, and my hand's up next to his, and you can just see the striking difference. So yeah, it's when they come out and they're like, well, we have unisex, or we can do men's small sizes. That should be fine. It's not, because it's going to hang on me. And what's going to happen is I'm going to pull on it all day long, and I'm not going to be confident because I'm going to be psychologically thinking about how my clothing's fitting or worried that it's going to snag on something, I'm going to get injured. So we really have to make sure that there's an awareness there within companies and among everybody, because allyship is also a good part to this, that you know, if there's one female on a job site that Maybe a a guy steps up and goes, hey, does she actually have the proper fitting PPE? Because unisex or a size small is not going to cut it in men's for her. So we want to be prepared for this workforce to actually come out with women. We have to be prepared on the forefront before they even step into the job. And that's knowing who the vendors are, knowing where the resources are, so that on day one, she's already got the correct shoe. She's already got the pants. She's already got the high vis, and she's ready to rock and roll for you.
4: How often when safety professionals do an investigation, do they look look at the end result of an incident, you know, the fight finality and go, this is where the worker should have stopped work, should have ceased work without realizing the worker at that stage doesn't have the end result in front of them. So perhaps... They never had the thought at that stage to cease work or stop work.
2: Yes. But then you also then have their supervisor on the back end during the investigation go, well, it's in the policy. He knew it should have stopped, but no, no, no. Yeah. I, it's frustrating because I've done investigations where, you know, we, we have these conversations and it's so easy to, you know, have that, that, those binoculars on and see that end result and be like well you know we have a policy you know he's been trained not to do that he still did it anyways okay but let's go back and review when this all took place you're short staffed on that project by three people and now he's doing the work of four people his brain's in a different category he's feeling rushed he's feeling stressed and his leadership is putting pressure on him to still produce. So yeah, the, the dominoes stacked up in a different way. Yeah. And we're not addressing sometimes those components. Instead, I still see employers that just put it back on the employee rather than take ownership that it's maybe a policy issue
4: mm-hmm.
2: or it's a staffing issue or it's a right. training issue. Yeah, But it's never, when I look at accident investigations, my first
0: thought is how did this result
2: happen what other factors contributed to the employee having this event instead of how did the employee screw up yeah but we're you still know, in this culture of putting the blame on the employee
4: yeah it, it, it's one of those things that when we write a policy and procedure we, we envisage per, perfect conditions yet the workers inevitably on a day-to-day basis are not working in the perfect conditions and when people look at those policy procedures and say, well, why did they deviate? Well, because they wanted to get the job done. And under these circumstances, this was the way that they thought was the best way to get the job done. Yeah, yeah, it it annoys me. All right. Yeah,
2: I think it annoys every safety person out there because we know in in our brains, we're seeing it from that viewpoint. We all have discussions when we go to conferences but we can't get the buy-in sometimes from the leadership team to understand that, you know?
4: Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. All right. I'm going to ask you one more thing. Root cause. There's a whole science about root cause analysis. Oh my God. I wish we could just ban that word. There those two words, root cause, because yeah. it seems oh, to be so ingrained in the safety system yet. And, and it goes on to management who have this much knowledge and all we do is get what's the one reason this happened and it's just like despite the term is root cause there is it's not going to ever be one singular cause to an incident or accident and I just it's going to be a
2: contributing factor
4: oh yeah
2: I've never done an incident investigation where I felt that there was one root cause now I've been pressured to put one root cause but there's again i go with the domino analogy because i always feel like that's a perfect way to kind of see it all line up right because it's going to yep. be work culture the personality the psychosocial hazards all that like now can we just get rid of that can we start a campaign to get rid of work yeah, yeah let's
4: ban that ban that phrase i'll and, start and, on
2: and, the u.s side you start on the australian side
4: i'll pass that on to it <laughs> When we speak next. All right. Next, we heard from Alistair Rose. Now, Alistair Rose was a highly decorated New Zealand police officer, and he talks to us about post-traumatic stress disorder and how it affects
10: those who are there to protect us all. About 2007, I was involved in a critical incident where an armed offender had just murdered a person in the hills above Wellington. He had shot a whole lot of other people with his shotgun, beaten some people up, and he was on a rampage. He was, he was wanted by police. We knew he was active. He was taxing various drug houses, and he was big a bit naughty. He'd only just been released on parole from another homicide, so he was a, a nasty piece of work. He was a big man. I mean, I'm six foot three. He was a big guy. Anyway, confronted him. We ended up, he pointed a a firearm at me, pulled the trigger, and it failed to fire. And that's. I would say that's probably a defining moment (laughs) in my life, you know. I would say that that was probably the most scared I've ever been. It was absolutely terrifying. And we ended up shooting him, blowing out his femoral artery in one of his legs. And man, he bled like a stuck pig. And good job too took him down, we arrested him. And because I've been a paramedic, I managed to save his life and stem the bleeding because he was really bleeding out. And so I did my paramedic thing on him and waited for the ambulance to arrive. And, and he was, he was stripped away and eventually lost his leg. They chopped it off because it was so badly damaged because the, the round that you use in the police is called a shock, So it's a hollow point and it's designed not to go all the way through. It's designed to stop halfway through and create, and it creates a lot of damage. So it really knackered his leg. So he lost it. After that, I was, I was with another guy when we were confronted by this, by this armed offender and we were decorated with the New Zealand Bravery Star, which is a tier two bravery decoration. It's been seven years since I left police now and I've calmed down. And that's a good thing. You know, it's, uh, it's tiring going through life being on edge like that, and they're constantly looking after, over your shoulder, and like like all cops do, you know. You're always looking, geez, has that guy got a warrant? Geez, I bet he needs locking up. And you're looking at cars, you're looking at people, and that's tiring, you know. <laughs> so no um, wonder I was so bloody tired. I think, think, I, think I, I think it was a, a slow realisation that probably this is what I had, PTSD. You know, I was certainly aware that I didn't fit in with society anymore. In that I was becoming increasingly withdrawn and depressed, suicidal. You know, and, and those are all all symptoms of it. And because I've got a health background, you know, I was, and because I've been to a lot of suicides, yep. you know, I started to recognise that in myself, and went and spoke to my GP about it, and started the process of of getting diagnosed with with PTSD. And the more I sort of opened up to PTSD and the more that I spoke to, to people about it, the more that I, it was, you know, it's useful to understand this stuff, but you don't want to sort of let it live your life. You've, you've got to carry on with life and otherwise you, you just become a, a hermit. And I could see myself doing that. You know, I was probably getting a bit agoraphobic, didn't want to go out. I'm I'm really sensitive to noise. I'm hyper vigilant. Screaming kids annoy the shit out of me. Loud exhaust, particularly Harley Davidsons or boy racer cars, or I you think you call them hoon's over your way, particularly annoy me. And that and that's because you know crying babies in distress that that so that means something to me. Yeah. Loud, loud exhaust. That's a particular type of person that also means something to me as a cop. You know, generally speaking, both are a threat. So, you know, I didn't want to go out and sort of be part of society. And it was hard. You know, it was really hard.
4: Finally, in that group, we spoke to Michael Coogan. Michael Coogan has worked in corrections. He's worked in probation, parole. He's helped police. And he talks about some of the stresses that people in those frontline industries face and how it affects them.
8: Yes, every day is, is a risk because you just don't know day-to-day day that, you know, when you're dealing with offenders, the reason they're in there is because they're not necessarily nice people. And some of those people can be quite violent if they have some mental health issues. And so the the threat or the risk or fear of assault is a constant, you know, we can come to work, you know, feeling pretty good and you wake up the offender and uh, he might just, uh, just snap and then... You know, I was lucky that I think in 15 years I was only assaulted once. Mm-hmm. So I guess that was, you know, good. But I guess it's just, there's a lot of psychological work that goes on with it. I think it's because, because of that risk. And, you know, you know and back mm-hmm. like in the early days, when there was lots of syringes, needles in the prison, you're always concerned about getting a needle stick injury. Um, mm-hmm. uh, from what I'm seeing now, you know, it's maybe not as bad, but. Knowing some of my colleagues, and I, I've had a few colleagues that have committed suicide from post traumatic stress, and a lot of that came down to the work environment. But not just the pressure from working with the offenders, because that was there was also the lapse from the management of the of the the system. And as I said, you always had that constant worry about something happening, and you know whether you know if you're doing the perimeter of the jail in the early days. You now they always concerned. Of, about escape attempts, and because firearms have been used in a couple escape attempts over the years, that was always a concern. Mm-hmm. But the internal side internal of things, again, because I know for my, my time when I first started, we had the worst of the worst come out of um, the old Bog Road prison, and they were put from a, a very archaic system into a new system where they had access to knives and everything else. So they were able to make home brews and they get get drunk and you'd almost guarantee every afternoon shift that there would be, you know, assaults on staff because the prisoners could get drunk. But then there was also the, the constant of you know, finding offenders who would try to commit suicide by slashing their wrists and things like that. So now I think a lot of people don't realise it, but they don't have an effect because even though they're an offender, mm. if you find someone like that or well, you've got to if, you know, some people go, "Yeah, it's only a, it's only a prisoner who cares." Well, yeah, there's a human side to staff. You know, we're there to make sure people stay alive. As much of them have our own opinions about different offenders and uh, what they've done. at The end of the day, our job is to make sure they serve their they serve their sentence and um, you know, and they stay alive. And when you encompass that, the, the psychological effects, I think, long-term is something that people don't understand or don't see what a
4: uh, question officer goes through.
5: And finally, who have we got up next?
4: Finally, we have the group of people that I like to call a specialist. And first of all, we heard from Trix Burgess. Now, Trix could have fitted in a number of groups. She could have fitted in a trainer-type group as well. But she's a specialist because she works for Morton Bay Regional Council and she tells us about some of the hazards and risks employees working for council face.
11: It also seems to be that with the whole psychosocial hazards and now that's a thing in terms of the law, people are still trying to wrap their head around it and especially at the management level. On the grounds, you know, as a safety business partner, uh, I already knew this was happening and it was simply because as a trainer, you have to, to maintain your currency. So you have to do research. Now, you know, it's a processes that we have in place and especially for you know our library staff they mm. they are getting they get hammered by i mean not physically hammered but they get abused by people our people that are at the Waybridge at the dumps they get abused you know cars will just try and get under the green gate and all of that sort of stuff so having the management or the executive leadership team you know come on board and say okay safety, we need you to work with the HR people so that we can collaborate and start looking at how we are going to, you know, put control measures and how are we going to write to like procedures and processes around psychosocial risk and all of those types of things. It's been quite an interesting journey.
4: Next, we heard from Glenn Cook. Now, Glenn Cook specializes in safety prevention programs, particularly dealing with coming into contact with live overhead wires, highly decorated, highly recommended.
12: So I've done maybe 300 shock investigations as well. And unfortunately, part of that role was investigating fatalities and and electrocutions and, um, you know, serious incidents and basically never thought that I'd be in safety, right? So, you know, I still remember being involved in this sort of incident I'm going to talk about in a sec about what changed my career. And, you know, the, the safety team approached me and said, you know, I think you should come and, and work with us in safety. I'm like, safety? No one likes the safety guy. No no, thanks. <laughs> I'll be right. I, I love being an electrician and, and, and the technical aspects of that. But I, I was involved in a – I moved from – from Cairns to, to Harvey Bay about 12 years ago. And one of the first incidents I was involved in after I moved was an electrocution, which basically sort of happened across the road from a, from a high school. And it really did resonate with me. And 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 I thought, you know, I could make a difference in this space and, and talk about what I've done. But yeah, basically a guy was working on an elevated work platform, got too close to 11,000 volt power line. And um, you know, electricity arcs or jumps, uh, basically arced across, went through him, and he was he was electrocuted instantly. And like I said, when when I got on site and seen, you know, the devastation. Uh, when when I first started this role, I was just like, well, you know, why does this keep occurring? And and I thought, you know, that like I I drive around all day, and my family you know, sort of laugh at me because I'll pull up and t- start taking photos of power lines and stuff, you know, and they go, what a weirdo, you know. <laughs> like, but but I see them. Like, I'm in the industry, and anyone that's in the industry, we see power lines. But And you sort of think, how, how does this occur? But when I first started the role, I just started asking people. I'm like, well... I need to be an advocate for, you know, builders, plumbers, painters and farmers, for example, to to try and change things from a power line distribution side of it. You know, what can we do to make it more more easier to get information, for example? And once I started asking people, they all had a very similar answer. They'd, They'd just say, I knew the power line was there. I was talking to a lot of pilots as well at the time and, you know, like, called Phil Hurst, who was the Aerial Application Association of Australia CEO. And he said to me, It's inattentional blindness. And he goes, It's that one point in time when your, your mind or your brain doesn't perceive danger and you, you miss something. You you're basically, your eyes and your brain don't work that well together. And your brain can blot things out and you won't see them. You know, I always ask people in my talks, You know, I say, When you drove here this morning, how many power lines you just see? And people start looking at each other going, hey, how does Cookie know I didn't see any power lines today, mm-hmm. right? And, and power lines are built to be out of your reach or, or out of your way in your everyday lives. So, you know, you can take the kids to go school, go shopping, go on holidays, and you won't impact an overhead power line. But once you start work, you're in a, in, in a machine or you're you're operating a scissor lift or, you know, you're using ladders, all of a sudden you're using equipment that can can reach the power line. that's where people get in in trouble right so it's it's 100 a human factor it's it's just a human factor that we make mistakes and our brain is trying to conserve energy and if your brain's telling you that you don't need to worry about power lines because you you know you you can go about your everyday lives without healing them it just doesn't click back on when you start working because in my experience, 95% of all these incidents that occur with people hitting power lines, 95% of them are workers, All right. So yeah. it's not people in their everyday lives. The other 5% are people clearing trees in their front yard. Yeah. So you get themselves in trouble that way.
4: We also heard from Deoni Drew, a.k.a. Hard Hat Mentor, and in her honest and hard-hitting conversation, she talks about how potentially... We've lost a whole generation of people who have no faith in safety on the work side.
13: Psychological safety or the lack thereof.
4: Yep. Yep.
13: Now, of course, there's a whole lot of stuff I could go into, but, you know, that's for me is I'm very, very glad to see the industry is realising the importance of said psychological safety because it, we can throw more compliance at anything, but it doesn't mean that we're going to get anywhere. If all the risk management tools that we use were used as intended, would they work? Maybe. Are they working? No. But if we've got that trust and the communication between, you know, leaders at all levels, then that's going to really, really help the safety down the hole because the ripple effects of leadership is massive from the boardroom, the decision-making, the resources, the manning, the budget. But more importantly, the, the people speak up, and there's no secrets. Like, <laughs> whenever I go to a site, I say to said general managers, if I do my job well, your near misses and first aides are going to go through the roof. He said, well, What do you mean, Drew? I said, Because you're going to actually hear about stuff that's been going on forever they didn't know about, right? Oh. Um, but psychological safety includes the mental health aspect, inclusion, diversity, bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, the whole gambit. It's a big job. It's not going to happen overnight. There's a lot of good people working on it. Yep. And I just hope some of the companies who are doing things that's not lip service, they actually mean it. We've lost the workforce. We lost it many, 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 many years ago. We have taught an entire generation how to chicken and flick. We've actually taught an entire generation how to tell us what we want to hear. Not only that, we'll give them awards for it. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm very cynical, but I stand by that. Now, that doesn't mean that's always the case. No. I do believe in these risk management tools if they were used the way they're intended. Good. But they're not. Yep. So, I mean, for instance, back in the day, four and one, I mean, we built Hope Downs, I built Challenger Mindsight, I built Ravensthorpe back in the day. Four weeks on one off, the take fires when they were new. My crew, they'd write, I'd bust them, they would write four weeks worth mm. in one day on the grog after yep. work and yep. just hand them in. And they were very, 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 very good. And like randomly picked jobs. This is now. This is the proof that I knew we taught a whole generation how to tell us what we want to hear. Yeah. You know, the reason they're invented, we know why they're invented, we know why JSAs were invented, but because the workforce And and again, it's an organisational failure because we keep rewarding them. Like they'd put one in, a really good one, that they wrote even at home and we give them an award for it. Or people write one on doing a fart and nobody would say anything. So they'd say, what's the point of this shit? No one's reading them. So you can't win, right? Yeah, no, I think the workforce, unless you've got the trust of your workforce, they are going to be cynical about everything. Even if you do a survey on their trust. If will tell don't you what you want to hear back the results yeah. authentically and honestly and openly, then the next time you do a survey on whatever the hell else you want to know, whether it's safety, whether it's culture, they'd like oh, another bloody survey. Um, sadly, 90% of the people I speak to on the ground, especially when it comes to safety tools, no, we've lost them. Yeah, yeah. We've lost them, mate. They don't believe in any of it. They don't even know half their procedures. They don't even care. Yep. It's dangerous. It scares me because some of those procedures were written in blood, some of it was mine. And it's scary. But I get why we're where we're at. But I think that's why I try and do what I do to remind people that look, this the brutal facts are this shit's probably not going anywhere.
4: Mm. And finally, we rounded out the year with conversation with Dr. Dan Hill, who talked about the importance of quality training and assessing for workplace competencies. On the job. How important is
3: it? It's vitally important. We measure against benchmarks. That's how someone proves they're competent or not. So having a benchmark to report against, in other words, you know, you've got an observation checklist of some form mm. that you're looking at to make sure the person performs that task to that standard, then that becomes the critical piece of documentation that you as an assessor have to know inside out. Now, here's something, actually, when you're doing an observation like that, what are the one of the big problems is that you're watching, you're thinking about what you have to write down. You're hoping that you understand what the various interpretations of the, the things you're supposed to be looking at are and then writing down some sort of comment and ticking it off. Mm. But where is your attention? Your attention should be on the candidate.
4: It's on a not, bit of paper or yeah, something. Yeah, on the right. piece of paper. Yeah.
3: So for a, if you want to get to be a really good on-site assessor, you should be able to almost recite word for word, that checklist that you're checking off.
4: Yeah. So you fundamentally know in your mind what you're looking for without having to keep popping, your, being mm. the naughty, pop your head up and down, up and down, up and down. Yeah, look, I can't stress that enough about safety, about having proper assessments against proper benchmarks. And I'll give you an example. And it's it's one that not many people think about. A few years ago, we had the Dreamworld incident. Mm. And not many people like to talk about it. I don't like to talk about it because it involves people dying. But if you fundamentally go back and look at the coroner's report and the critical examination of the training that was and, pretty- and, and, and the assessing of the people who were put in charge of these rides, which heavy equipment by any nature, Um it was fundamentally flawed and there was no systematic assessment against benchmarks it was a personal opinion without mm-hmm. any without anything being ticked off formally and yeah these are the things that cost people's lives signing people off to operate heavy equipment if you're not sure of their competence sooner or later you're going to get caught out, and you'll be you'll be put in front of a coroner's court and they're trying to explain how you actually assess them competent at that time. So it's one of those things. Even if industry doesn't think they need a piece of paper to do um, non-accredited training and assessing, I can't stress enough how important it is to have at least that fundamental knowledge of how to run assessments but also to write assessments because you mm. talked about checklists here. Mm. And the, the question I have for anyone who's using any checklist is who wrote it? And if you don't know who wrote it, why are you using it? Mm. Because you're assuming the person who wrote it knows what they're talking about and you shouldn't have to.
3: In the mining sector, they have that in the culture training they normally do. They refer to the newspaper test. You're probably familiar with it. You know, if, if the, an incident occurs in, at, on the site, what would it look like in the headline of a paper? You know, and is that the headline you want to see? Yeah. And I compare that to if you're an assessor who's filling out someone's assessment. Imagine you're getting up in coroner's court having to defend how you assess that person. Isn't that the person you want to be? Isn't it not the person in court, but the person who knows exactly what they assessed, why they assessed it, how they assessed it, and what the outcomes should have been?
5: Wow, that's a big year, Tom.
4: It was indeed. It was indeed. But we'll be back again after a short break to do it all again. We've already got some stellar guests lined up and with some other people who've basically committed to doing it, but haven't got quite over the line for recording yet. But from us to you, well, at least from me at this stage, because I hardly, you know, up to me to speak for anyone else, I'd like you to wish you a very, very happy new year. And hopefully you'll get a bit of a break over the new year period to relax, reflect, review and recover before, we're back again next year, bigger and better than ever.
5: Thanks, Tom, for all your work in the health and safety conversation space. It's been a really great opportunity for people to to really be able to showcase their work and and their professionalism, but also to really have great conversations around health and safety. and I think that's that's a fantastic. And I know, the amount of work you put into the podcast and and listening to the podcast and you know I think it's it's some really great work and thanks to all the guests who have have come along this year and it's been fantastic and I know how energized Tom gets through these conversations and how excited he is after this conversation so you know it's really fantastic to to see that happening so thank you enjoy your break if you're having one if you're not then I really do hope that you get some time to rest and recuperate. It's it's an important time and an important thing to do. Bring on 2023. E, 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 E,
11: E.
3: Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week.
1: stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree that's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads
2: hi i'm kara berry host of everyone's business but mine and i am an all inclusive addict enter club med the best all inclusive for you and your family